0: Section 13 of Our National Parks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our National Parks by John Muir. Chapter 7, Part 1 Among the Birds of the Yosemite. Travelers in the Sierra Forests usually complain of the want of life. The trees, they say, are fine. But the empty stillness is deadly. There are no animals to be seen, no birds. We have not heard a song in all the woods. And no wonder. They go in large parties with mules and horses. They make a great noise. They are dressed in outlandish, unnatural colors. Every animal shuns them. Even the frightened pines would run away if they could. But nature lovers, devout, silent, open eyed, looking and listening with love, find no lack of inhabitants in these mountain mansions and they come to them gladly not to mention the large animals or the small insect people every waterfall has its oozel and every tree its squirrel or tamias or bird tiny nuthatch threading the furrows of the bark cheerily whispering to itself as it deftly pries off loose scales and examines the curled edges of lichens or clark crow or jay examining the cones or some singer oriole tanager warbler resting feeding attending to domestic affairs hawks and eagles sail overhead grouse walk in happy flocks below and song sparrows sing in every bed of chaparral there is no crowding to be sure unlike the low eastern trees those of the sierra in the main forest belt average nearly two hundred feet in height and of course many birds are required to make much show in them and many voices to fill them nevertheless the whole range from foothills to snowy summits is shaken into song every summer and though low and thin in winter the music never ceases the sagecock, cock urophasianus, is the largest of the sierra game birds and the king of american grouse it is an admirably strong hardy handsome independent bird able with comfort to bid defiance to heat cold drought hunger and all sorts of storms living on whatever seeds or insects chance to come in its way or simply on the leaves of sagebrush everywhere abundant on its desert range in winter when the temperature is oftentimes below zero and heavy snowstorms are blowing he sits beneath a sage-bush and allows himself to be covered poking his head now and then through the snow to feed on the leaves of his shelter not even the arctic ptarmigan is hardier in braving frost and snow and wintry darkness When in full plumage he is a beautiful bird, with a long, firm, sharp-pointed tail, which in walking is slightly raised, and swings sidewise back and forth with each step. The male is handsomely marked with black and white on the neck, back and wings, weighs five or six pounds, and measures about thirty inches in length. The female is clad mostly in plain brown, and is not so large. They occasionally wander from the sage plains into the open nut pine and juniper woods, but never enter the main coniferous forest it is only in the broad dry half-desert sage plains that they are quite at home where the weather is blazing hot in summer cold in winter if anyone passes through a flock all squat on the gray ground and hold their heads low hoping to escape observation but when approached within a rod or so they rise with a magnificent burst of wing-beats looking about as big as turkeys and making a noise like a whirlwind On the 28th of June, at the head of Owen's Valley, I caught one of the young that was then just able to fly. It was seven inches long, of a uniform gray color, blunt build, and when captured cried lustily in a shrill piping voice, clear in tone as a boy's small willow whistle. I have seen flocks of from ten to thirty or forty on the east margin of the park, where the mono-desert meets the gray foothills of the Sierra. But since cattle have been pastured there, they are becoming rarer every year. Another magnificent bird, the blue or dusky grouse, next in size to the sagecock, is found all through the main forest belt, though not in great numbers. They like best the heaviest silver fir woods near garden and meadow openings, where there is but little underbrush to cover the approach of enemies when a flock of these brave birds sauntering and feeding on the sunny flowery levels of some hidden meadow or yosemite valley far back in the heart of the mountains see a man for the first time in their lives they rise with hurried notes of surprise and excitement and alight on the lowest branches of the trees wondering what the wanderer may be and showing great eagerness to get a good view of the strange vertical animal knowing nothing of guns they allow you to approach within a half a dozen paces then quietly hop a few branches higher or fly to the next tree without a thought of concealment so that you may observe them as long as you like near enough to see the fine shading of their plumage the feathers on their toes and the innocent wonderment in their beautiful wild eyes but in the neighbourhood of roads and trails they soon become shy and when disturbed fly into the highest leafiest trees and suddenly become invisible. So well do they know how to hide and keep still, and make use of their protective coloring. Nor can they be easily dislodged ere they are ready to go. In vain the hunter goes round and round some tall pine or fir, into which he has perhaps seen a dozen enter, gazing up through the branches, straining his eyes, while his gun is held ready. Not a feather can he see, unless his eyes have been sharpened by long experience and knowledge of the blue grouse's habits then perhaps when he is thinking that the tree must be hollow and that the birds have all gone inside they burst forth with a startling whir of wing-beats and after gaining full speed go skating swiftly away through the forest arches in a long silent wavering slide with wings held steady during the summer they are most of the time on the ground feeding on insects seeds berries etc around the margins of open spots and rocky moraines playing and sauntering, taking sunbaths and sand baths, and drinking at little pools and rills during the heat of the day. In winter they live mostly in the trees, depending on buds for food, sheltering beneath dense overlapping branches at night and during storms on the lee side of the trunk, sunning themselves on the south side limbs in fine weather, and sometimes diving into the mealy snow to flutter and wallow, apparently for exercise and fun. I have seen young broods running beneath the firs in June at a height of 8,000 feet above the sea. On the approach of danger, the mother, with a peculiar cry, warns the helpless midgets to scatter and hide beneath leaves and twigs, and even in plain open spaces it is almost impossible to discover them. In the meantime, the mother feigns lameness, throws herself at your feet, kicks and gasps and flutters to draw your attention from the chicks. The young are generally able to fly about the middle of July, but even after they can fly well, they are usually advised to run and hide and lie still, no matter how closely approached, while the mother goes on with her loving, lying acting, apparently as desperately concerned for their safety as when they were featherless infants. Sometimes, however, after carefully studying the circumstances, she tells them to take wing, and up and away in a blurry burr and whirr they scatter to all points of the compass as if blown up with gunpowder dropping cunningly out of sight three or four hundred yards off and keeping quiet until called after the danger is supposed to be passed if you walk on a little way without manifesting any inclination to hunt them you may sit down at the foot of a tree near enough to see and hear the happy reunion one touch of nature makes the whole world kin and it is truly wonderful how love-telling the small voices of these birds are And how far they reach through the woods into one another's hearts and into ours. The tones are so perfectly human and so full of anxious affection, few mountaineers can fail to be touched by them. They are cared for until full grown. On the twentieth of August, as I was passing along the margin of a garden spot at the headwaters of the San Joaquin, a grouse rose from the ruins of an old juniper that had been uprooted and brought down by an avalanche from a cliff overhead. She threw herself at my feet limped and fluttered and gasped showing as i thought that she had a nest and was raising a second brood looking for the eggs i was surprised to see a strong-winged flock nearly as large as the mother fly up around me instead of seeking a warmer climate when the winter storm set in these hardy birds stay all the year in the high sierra forests and i have never known them to suffer in any sort of weather able to live on the buds of pine spruce and fir Are forever independent in the matter of food supply, which gives so many of us trouble, dragging us here and there away from our best work. How gladly I would live on pine buds, however pitchy, for the sake of this grand independence. With all his superior resources, man makes more distracting difficulty concerning food than any other of the family. The mountain quail or plumed partridge, Oreoctix Pictus plumiferus, is common in all the upper portions of the park though nowhere in numbers he ranges considerably higher than the grouse in summer but is unable to endure the heavy storms of winter when his food is buried he descends the range to the brushy foothills at a height of from two to three thousand feet above sea but like every true mountaineer he is quick to follow the spring back into the highest mountains i think he is the very handsomest and most interesting of all the american partridges larger and handsomer than the famous bob white or even the fine california valley quail or the messina partridge of arizona and mexico that he is not so regarded is because as a lonely mountaineer he is not half known his plumage is delicately shaded brown above white and rich chestnut below and on the sides with many dainty markings of black and white and gray here and there while his beautiful head plume three or four inches long nearly straight composed of two feathers closely folded so as to appear as one is worn jauntily slanted backward like a single feather in a boy's cap giving him a very marked appearance they wander over the lonely mountains in family flocks of from six to fifteen beneath cianathus manzanita and wild cherry thickets and over dry sandy flats glacier meadows rocky ridges And beds of bryanthus around glacier lakes, especially in autumn when the berries of the upper gardens are ripe, uttering low clucking notes to enable them to keep together. When they are not so suddenly disturbed that they are afraid, they rise with a fine hearty whirr and scatter in the brush over an area of half a square mile or so. A few of them diving into leafy trees, but as soon as the danger is past, the parents with a clear piping note call them together again. By the end of July, the young are two thirds grown and fly well, though only dire necessity can compel them to try their wings. In gait, gestures, habits, and general behavior, they are like domestic chickens, but infinitely finer, searching for insects and seeds, looking to this side and that, scratching among fallen leaves, jumping up to pull down grass heads, and clucking and muttering in low tones. Once, when I was seated at the foot of a tree on the headwaters of the Merced, sketching, I heard a flock up the valley behind me, and by their voices gradually sounding nearer, I knew that they were feeding toward me. I kept still, hoping to see them. Soon one came within three or four feet of me, without noticing me any more than if I were a stump or a bulging part of the trunk against which I was leaning, my clothing being brown nearly like the bark. Presently along came another and another, and it was delightful to get so near a view of these handsome chickens, perfectly undisturbed observe their manners and hear their low peaceful notes at last one of them caught my eye gazed in silent wonder for a moment then uttered a peculiar cry which was followed by a lot of hurried muttered notes that sounded like speech the others of course saw me as soon as the alarm was sounded and joined the wonder talk gazing and chattering astonished but not frightened then all with one accord ran back with the news to the rest of the flock what is it what is it oh you never saw the like they seemed to be saying not a deer or a wolf or a bear come see come see where where down there by that tree then they approached cautiously past the tree stretching their necks and looking up in turn as if knowing from the story told them just where i was for fifteen or twenty minutes they kept coming and going venturing within a few feet of me and discussing the wonder in charming chatter their curiosity at last satisfied they began to scatter and feed again, going back in the direction they had come from, while I, loath to part with them, followed noiselessly, crawling beneath the bushes, keeping them in sight for an hour or two, learning their habits, and finding out what seeds and berries they like best. The valley quail is not a mountaineer, and seldom enters the park except at a few of the lowest places on the western boundary. It belongs to the brushy foothills and plains, orchards and wheat fields. And is a hundred times more numerous than the mountain quail it is a beautiful bird about the size of the bobwhite and has a handsome crest of four or five feathers an inch long recurved standing nearly erect at times or drooping forward the loud calls of these quails in the spring pacheca pacheca hoy, hoy," are heard far and near over all the lowlands they have vastly increased in numbers since the settlement of the country notwithstanding the immense numbers killed every season by boys and pot-hunters as well as the regular-legged sportsmen from the towns for man's destructive action is more than counterbalanced by increased supply of food from cultivation and by the destruction of their enemies coyotes skunks foxes hawks owls etc which not only kill the old birds but plunder their nests where coyotes and skunks abound scarce one pair in a hundred is successful in raising a brood So well aware are these birds of the protection afforded by man, even now that the number of their wild enemies has been greatly diminished, that they prefer to nest near houses, notwithstanding they are so shy. Four or five pairs rear their young around our cottage every spring. One year a pair nested in a straw pile within four or five feet of the stable door, and did not leave the eggs when the men led the horses back and forth within a foot or two for many seasons a pair nested in a tuft of pampas grass in the garden another pair in an ivy vine on the cottage roof and when the young were hatched it was interesting to see the parents getting the fluffy dots down they were greatly excited and their anxious calls and directions to their many babies attracted our attention they had no great difficulty in persuading the young birds to pitch themselves from the main roof to the porch roof among the ivy but to get them safely down from the ladder to the ground a distance of ten feet was most distressing. It seemed impossible the frail, soft things could avoid being killed. The anxious parents led them to a point above a spirea bush that reached nearly to the eaves, which they seemed to know would break the fall. Anyhow, they led their chicks to this point and with infinite coaxing and encouragement got them to tumble themselves off. Down they rolled and sifted through the soft leaves and panicles to the pavement, and, strange to say, all got away unhurt except one that lay as if dead for a few minutes. When it revived, the joyful parents, with their brood fairly launched on the journey of life, proudly led them down the cottage hill, through the garden, and along an Osage orange hedge into the cherry orchard. These charming birds even enter towns and villages, where the gardens are of good size and guns are forbidden, sometimes going several miles to feed, and returning every evening to their roosts in ivy or brushy trees and shrubs. Geese occasionally visit the park, but never stay long. Sometimes on their way across the range, a flock wanders into Hetch Hetchy or Yosemite to rest or get something to eat, and if shot at, are often sorely bewildered in seeking a way out. I have seen them rise from the meadow or river, wheel round in a spiral, until a height of four or five hundred feet was reached, then form ranks and try to fly over the wall. But Yosemite magnitudes seem to be as deceptive to geese as to men for they would suddenly find themselves against the cliffs, not a fourth of the way to the top. Then, turning in confusion and screaming at the strange heights, they would try the opposite side, and so, until exhausted, they were compelled to rest, and only after discovering the river canyon could they make their escape. Large, harrow-shaped flocks may often be seen crossing the range in the spring, at a height of at least fourteen thousand feet. Think of the strength of wing required to sustain. So heavy a bird in air so thin. At this elevation, it is but little over half as dense as at the sea level. Yet they hold bravely on in beautifully dressed ranks and have breath enough to spare for loud honking. After the crest of the Sierra is passed, it is only a smooth slide down the sky to the waters of Mono, where they may rest as long as they like. End of section thirteen.